Good morning. I'm Peggy. Today's scripture is Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold my servant, who I upon uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burned wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the crosslands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Sometime when I was in high school, I, uh, I discovered the joy of my dad's records. <laughs> uh, I got a, an LP, uh, I got a record player, uh, and started playing these records that my dad had. Um, thanks for turning off that bass. That was, yeah. Uh, and one of the artists that I discovered that I really liked was this guy who was, he was a cultural sage of wisdom, a cultural prophet in the 60s and the 70s, a guy named Bob Dylan. Love Bob Dylan. And this is one of the things that he said in a song in January of 1979. So pretty late in his career, actually. He says this, you may be a construction worker working on a home. Might be living in a mansion. You might live in a dome. You may own guns, you may even own tanks, you may be somebody's landlord, you may even own banks, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Serve somebody, you know the song? You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You know that song? Now, it wasn't a tryout. Um, please don't tell me if I failed, Jenny. Um, Bob was on to something, I think, deep and rich and true uh, and biblical about our nature as human beings. Uh, see, Bob was trying to say that it does not matter if you work as hard as a construction worker. If you're a hard worker, you are not going to be fully independent. It does not matter if you're as rich as Warren Buffett and you own banks you're not going to be fully independent. It does not matter if you're a Second Amendment guy or if you're Vladimir Putin and you have tanks behind you, an entire army at your command. 
you won't be fully independent. All human beings share this universally. We all have this in common. We all will serve somebody or something, someone. It's how we were designed. In the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that uh, the, the creator designed us to serve him. In fact, the way that the language talks about it is that we were made in God's image, in his likeness. Therefore, our entire identity is defined against the backdrop of who God is, his character. We were made to serve somebody. We were made to serve the creator. But the world is filled with injustice. It's filled with brokenness, um, things that we lament, uh, earthquakes that people die in. Um, There's disaster, there's sin, brokenness. And that came in because uh, we made a trade. Rather than serving the creator, Paul says in Romans 1 that we made a fatal exchange. We decided that we would rather serve created things. Uh, This is what the Bible calls idolatry. I uh, typically, when I think of worshiping idols and idolatry, I kind of, I have an image that comes into my mind. Maybe this is the same image that comes for you. Like little statues, right? And you bow down to the statues or there's a shrine. You put some incense or something, right? This is kind of what we think of with idolatry, right? Um, Well, that's certainly true in a number of places. People do that. They worship statues. But the Bible has a much deeper, richer understanding of what idolatry is. It talks about idols of our heart. And this is a universal condition. Every person does this. The way that Tim Keller, he's a pastor and an author in New York City, talks about idolatry is he says that idolatry is taking a good thing, a thing that God created to be good, and elevating it to a place of ultimate thing in your life. Taking a good thing. Taking family. It's a good thing and elevating it to a place of ultimate thing where you find meaning and significance. Taking a good thing like sex or power or money or influence or approval, love, and elevating it to a place of ultimate in your life. That's what idolatry is. It's universal. It's a trade. We're serving somebody. We're either serving the creator or created things. The text that we're going to look at this morning it's an interesting one. I like to imagine it as a great courtroom drama. I like, I like John Grisham. I'm not ashamed to say it. I like, I like John Grisham. I like uh, courtroom dramas. I know that they're not uh, real-life legal stuff is not as exciting as the stuff that happens in those. Um, but this is a courtroom drama where God wants to take those things that we put on the, ultimate, the seat of ultimate authority in our lives, and he wants to take them off of that seat, and he wants to put them instead on the witness stand. He says, I've got some questions for you. I've got some questions for the things that you worship. I have a judgment, a verdict that I want to render, and then I'm going to tell you exactly how I will work in the world in response to that. So let's be attentive. Let's be attentive to how God might be challenging things that we hold very close to our hearts, things that maybe you already feel defensive about. I know I felt defensive a lot this week as I was reading through this. Let's be attentive to how the Spirit might be inviting you and challenging you and asking you to take things off the seat of ultimate authority and put them on the witness stand. Let's pray and then jump into the text. 
Heavenly Father, uh, we recognize and acknowledge that you are at work here, that you're present, that there's nowhere that we can go from you, nowhere that we can hide from your spirit, that you're here, uh, and we're gathered here for the very purpose of learning more about who you are so that we can bring praise to you. Uh, We pray that you would illumine our hearts, open up our minds as we look at what can be a very confusing section of scripture. Um, Help me to communicate in a way that's clear and concise and not confusing. We pray that Christ would be honored with this time. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, Well, my name's Keith. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Uh, we have been going through a series in Isaiah. We just started it. It's uh, going from Isaiah 40 through 55. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and one of our ushers will be coming down the aisle here, and they can hand a Bible to you. We have Bibles in both English and in Spanish, so if you prefer one or the other, it's your heart language, please let that be known, uh, and our ushers will get a copy to you. If you don't own a copy, this is our gift to you. Hang on to it. We want everybody to have their own copy. Um, So in Isaiah 40 through 55, a couple things we need to know and and mark down kind of mentally about what's going on in this text. First of all, it wasn't written to you or me. It was written uh, a long time ago, uh, four to 500 years before Christ, uh, and it was written to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. It was written to Israel uh, when they were in captivity. They were conquered by Babylon. They were taken into captivity, uh, and therefore... Uh, they're oppressed. They're not in their native country. Uh, they're, they're probably feeling lost and hopeless. So keep that in your mind as we go through this. Second of all, it is not narrative. It's not narrative. Uh, and what that means is it's not a story with a linear progression. You don't go from point A to point B to point C. It's a poem. Uh, I personally struggle quite a bit with poetry. And sometimes I read it, I'm like, I know that's supposed to be really beautiful and powerful when I read poems. I don't get it. <laughs> so uh, if that's you as you're reading through this, that's okay. That's me too. Um, and uh, it's, it's really instead of narrative and trying to get a story across or instructions across, really what's trying to, what the author's trying to do here is make us feel a certain way with images, right? And so while there's not a, a consistent kind of narrative pulling us through, there is a consistent theme and message pulling us through Isaiah 40 all the way to 55. And that is that the God of the universe, the creator, is going to make all things new in the world. Where there's brokenness, he's going to make all things new. He's going to bring new creation. And he's specifically going to do that by the forgiveness of sins through a mysterious servant, who we don't know who he is, but through a servant. Okay, so keep that in mind as we approach the text this morning. We're in Isaiah 41 and 42. I'm going to do my best to go through these chapters uh, all the way through. But like I said, the courtroom drama begins, and it begins in uh, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 1. Look with me, if you would, at this verse. It says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. So what's going on here is that this is a summons. It's a summons to appear in court. Uh, Maybe you've received the summons before uh, for jury duty. I got one a few months ago, and I fulfilled my civil obligation, my civil duty. It was a joy, but it was also a little boring. Um, And maybe you're you're a little worried when you get those summons in the mail that you're going to actually have to go to court. This is a summons, uh, but who is being summoned and who's doing the summoning? So it says, listen to me in silence, O coastland. Again, this is a poem. 
So coastlands is poetic imagery. Imagine standing on the, the beach in San Diego and looking out over the ocean, right, and imagining the furthest away coastlands that you can imagine. This is poetic imagery to say all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the planet, okay? So he's saying, all the peoples of the planet, listen up. I'm going to talk, then you're going to talk, because I have some questions for you. And then after that, we're going to make a judgment. It is a trial that he's inviting them to, right? But who is the judge that's sitting over the trial? Well, verses 2 through 5 uh, describe this judge. He is God. He's Yahweh, the living God. And the way that he describes his own resume, his own authority to preside over this courtroom is he says that he's the one who raises up emperors and puts them down. He's the one who uh, has authority over every human authority on the planet. And also, he was in the beginning, will be in the end, and is now. So essentially, what he's saying is, by what authority do I preside over this honorable court of the cosmos? I preside with the authority over every human and earthly power and the power over time itself. He's sovereign over those things. So he is the sovereign judge. He's the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the cosmos. And he's sitting as a judge presiding over this trial that is to come. Well, as you can imagine, if you get a summons, um, and especially if you get a summons uh, to appear in court and you're the defendant, uh, it probably will make you feel some kind of way. Uh, the, the coastlands receive this, and it says in verse 5, this is how they respond. They've seen, and they are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near. They're appearing in court. They've come. But this is what they do to prepare and build their case. They know something's going to go down. And they say, everyone helps his neighbor. They say to their brother, be strong. They're comforting one another. It's okay. It's, we're we're going to make it through this. God's presiding his judge, but we're going to make it through this. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil. All the people who are making these gods, making these idols, are saying to one another, we're, the, the God is strong. You did good work. We're going to make it. And then finally, it says that they strengthen the idol, they strengthen their statue, their God, with nails so that it can't be moved. Now just think, think back to who the judge is. Presides over every empire, presides over all of time. How foolish this is from the get-go. You think that your God is going to stay up with some nails that you, nails don't even hold floorboards in at homes, right? Like that's going to hold your God steady. But the people respond with these three responses, with fear with comforting one another, and with trying to strengthen and defend and uphold their gods. And I think we do that too. Um, I am a big fan of fantasy football. Anybody else like fantasy football? Nobody? You guys obviously do. Yeah, you're nodding your head. Um, I'm a big fan of fantasy football, but I know it's a problem for me. I know it's a problem for me. I get way too into it. Um, I spend money on it. I, I buy guides and draft strategies and all these different things, and I buy into these leagues, and I know it's an issue for me. Um, I know. Uh, and today's the Super Bowl, as you know, uh, and every year around the Super Bowl, I start to think, maybe I could just take a break from football altogether. Maybe I could just pull back, you know, because 
there's all these injuries that happen and these, you know, kind of horrific injuries where you see players down on the field and they've had concussions and, you know, the, Tua Tagovailoa, uh, his hand seized up during a concussion. And I think, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I should take a break from football. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Um, or, you know, I think about all the commercials and how my kids are being formed and shaped as we watch football together. And they, you know, they're, they're receiving kind of this consumeristic propaganda over and over and over again. I'm like, okay, maybe I, should, maybe I should take a break from football. But you know what I do? I don't want to. And so I get afraid. I don't want to give up football. I like it too much. And I, I'll tell my friends, it's okay, you know, like football's not bad. It's not. Football's not. It's a good thing, right? I'll comfort myself. I'll comfort my friends. And just like these people nailing down their gods, uh, I start to say things like, yeah, but, yeah, but, it's really not all that bad. Yeah, but, the commissioner's changing the rules about concussion protocols. Yeah, but, you know, I can turn the commercials off. Yeah, but, and you know, I think that's the sound of hammers hitting nails. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. I think that's what it sounds like. And maybe some of you here, you're thinking through, and you're like, I, uh, you know, approval or appearance or your job has made its way to an ultimate status in your life. It's controlling you, and, and you're already hearing, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, as, as we're talking here. That's the sound of the hammer hitting the nails. We all do it. We all defend our gods. Um, we want our friends to tell us that it's okay. We want them to comfort us. Um, and what's really interesting, though, is to see that as the, uh, as the coastlands, as the peoples of the earth are responding this way, they're, they're setting their case, they're, they're afraid, they're comforting one another, and they're nailing down their gods, I want you to notice the contrast. We're not going to read through it all, but you can skim. Because the people who worship idols prepare for court. God is also preparing his covenant people for court as well. And what we see is they're afraid, the people who are uh, worshiping other gods, but God says to Israel, do not be afraid. Fear not. He says it three times. The people are comforting one another. You know, it's okay, it's okay, you're going to be strong, brother. But God is the one who prepares and comforts Israel. And then lastly, they're nailing in and defending and strengthening and upholding their gods. But the picture we get of how God is interacting with his people is he's defending and he's strengthening and he's upholding them. Maybe God is preparing you. Don't fear, he'll comfort you. He'll strengthen you, he'll uphold you. But the day of the trial eventually has to come. Uh, and so in verse 21, we see that God starts the trial. And this is how he opens it. This is his, uh, the case of the prosecution. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what's to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us things to come. Tell us what's to come hereafter that we may know that your gods do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. So here's the image. This is the picture that we get. The peoples of the earth, uh, they kind of have, have to pry the nails out, right? And they pick up the idol, and they put it on the witness stand, and it's over here. And God says, I have some questions for you. First question for you, idols. Tell me what's happened in the past. 
Go ahead. Tell me what's happened in the past. And this is what the idol does. And God's like, okay, all right. You didn't do so well with that one. I have another question for you. Uh, tell us what's going to happen after this in the future. Go ahead. And the idol. You know, it doesn't do anything. <laughs> and then lastly, God's saying, okay, well, do something. Do anything. Do good. Do bad. Make us afraid. Make us feel something. Do anything at all. And of course, it's met with silence because it's a statue. It doesn't do anything. And I think it's pretty easy to cross-examine idols like that, statues, because you're like, yeah, obviously it doesn't talk. It doesn't do anything. It has no power. But what about approval? I'm going to be honest with you. I want you to like me. I do. I think about it as I'm preparing sermons. I think about how I can be smart and how I can be funny, uh, how I can be interesting. I want you to like me. I want you to like my sermon. I love approval. It can become a God and often is a God for me. But when God cross-examines that, this is what happens. I can, I can hear the voice. Even this week, I could hear the voice. Keith, what's going to happen to you if you don't get approval? What if you never get approval? What's going to happen to you? So I think I stand over here, you know, I'm on the witness stand. Well, I'll be sad. I'll be depressed. You know, I actually would, I would be really sad. I'd be really depressed if I never got approval um, ever again. It doesn't, I would be probably in an identity crisis, right? And God says, okay, question two. How do you feel before you get your idol? Like, how do you feel now? And so I think, well, I get anxious. I, I hope that people will pay attention to me, that they'll listen to me. Um, I start to become overly perfectionistic. My wife is probably nodding her head. I'm not even looking at her. Um, I can be prone to be a workaholic. And if I can just work it out, practice things enough, if I can just have things tight, you know, then, then I'll be good. Um, but really what that produces is a loss for my family, a loss of my own time, a loss of my energy, my emotional energy. It doesn't produce a lot of good. But God says, okay, uh, Keith, last question for you here. What if you do get approval? What if you do get your God? And I, I think, well, I'll feel pretty good. <laughs> I'll feel pretty good. I like it. It's like a dopamine hit, right? I, I feel good about my life. I feel good about who I am. Um, but it's kind of short-lived. And if I get too much of it, um, I kind of get, get arrogant. I can be proud. I can be kind of a jerk. Um, and then here's the really terrible part is, let's say I preach a really great sermon. Now the bar is higher next time. It may not be for you. It is for me. Uh, and the cycle starts all over again. The anxiety, the perfectionism, the workaholism, all of that. It starts all over again. I'm enslaved. I'm enslaved to it. Some of you didn't connect with Bob Dylan. Maybe you're a little younger. Maybe you'll connect with this. Miley Cyrus. <laughs> she's the sage of our age. No, I'm just kidding. She's not. She has this song. And maybe you know this song. Maybe you know where I'm going. She starts a song with, she's proclaiming her love 
to the idol of autonomy and individualism. And she says, it's our party. We can do what we want. We can say what we want. We can love who we want. We can kiss who we want, right? She goes on, more than that. (laughs) But here's the irony of it. What's the title of the song? We can't stop. We can't stop. I love approval and I can't stop. Miley loves individual autonomy and she can't stop. We're enslaved to the things that we serve. We become their slaves. And the judgment that God pronounces, the verdict that he pronounces in verse 24 is he says, behold, he's talking to the gods. Remember, he's talking to the idols, not to you. Behold, you gods are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. It actually, it's worse than nothing. It does harm. And then here's the really, the part that hits me. An abomination is he who chooses you. Uh, it could say a slave is he who chooses you. It could say, like if you think of Gollum in the, in the Lord of the Rings, how he chooses the ring over and over and over again, and it, it slowly transforms him from something like a human to something totally unrecognizable, a monster, right? He's an abomination. That's what it does to us. The judgment has been pronounced. The verdict has been delivered. Gods are nothing, and we turn into slaves when we choose idols. So how is God going to work in the world? What's he going to do in response? What's his sentence after this verdict? And this is where, as I was reading this, I started to tense up. You know, man, I am definitely implicated in this. I'm definitely guilty in this. And I start to tense up. But this is what God says is his sentence, how he's going to act in the world in response to the crime of idolatry and our participation in it. He says this, Behold, look closely, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So we see the first part here. God's plan is to use a servant we're not sure who this servant is. We can take some guesses as we move through the text. But this servant's going to be filled with God's spirit, with the presence of God. He's going to be filled with that power, and he's going to bring justice to the nations, healing to the nations, to all the peoples of the earth, the coastlands. What will this servant be like? Well, it says in verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. He won't make it heard in the street. He's not going to be showy. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He's not going to crush the downhearted. He'll faithfully bring forth justice. He won't grow faint or be discouraged until he's established justice in the earth. So he's going to experience some kind of pain, some kind of anxiety. And yet it's not going to be until after he's opened a way for justice to the coastlands, to the whole earth, because the coastlands wait for his law. He's going to be gentle and strong. He's going to be kind, um, but he's also going to take the pain of discouragement on himself in order to open the way for covenant and love in the world. So what is going to happen when God does this sentence, completes this action in the world through his servant? Verse 6 of chapter 42, he reiterates his own identity. It's all rooted in who he is. He is the Lord. He's called the servant in righteousness He's going to take the servant by the hand and keep the servant. Um, He will give the servant as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Why? 
to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. Again, it's rooted in who he is, his identity. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And then lastly, he closes with this. He says, behold, the former things, they've, they're passing. There's a new thing that I'm doing in the world, new things I now declare, and they're already springing forth, and I'm telling you about them. So the, the servant, in summary, he's going to be a light to the nations. He's going to open the covenant to the coastlands, to all the people of the earth. He's going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to free those who are enslaved and imprisoned. He's going to pull people out of darkness. Why? Not because of anything that the people have done. Not because of anything the coastlands have done. Not because of what Israel has done, but for his own glory, for his own sake, for his own name, so that he would be famous in all the world and the world would be renewed and restored. The verdict, remember the verdict against idolatry is that idols are futile. They're empty. They're nothing. They're less than nothing. The verdict against us is that we're complicit, that we worship idols and that we become enslaved to the things that we serve. That's the verdict against us. And so we expect that the sentence against us would be punishment, imprisonment. But God's sentence for his covenant people, God's sentence for the nations, for the coastlands, God's sentence indeed for the whole creation is not imprisonment. It's freedom. It's healing. It's justice. The servant will save us from the futility of our idolatry. He will deliver us from our imprisonment. He will redeem us from our slavery to sin. He will do a new thing in his world. Old things are going to pass away. Israel was waiting. They were in, remember, they're in, they're in captivity. They're hearing these words, and they're, they are literally in captivity. They're literally enslaved to another people. They're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting for this servant of the Lord to come and to bring that new thing, to bring freedom, to renew their sight, to deliver them from the dungeons of darkness. They were waiting, but the wait's over for us. The wait is over. Because in Jesus, we have one who came to serve and not to be served. He's the servant. In Jesus, we have one who was totally unencumbered, unhindranced by sin and idolatry. He was not chained up. In Jesus, we have one who has been nailed. Not to strengthen an idol, but to destroy its power totally. In Jesus, we have one who invites us, the nations of the earth. I'm not Jewish. Probably most of you are not Jewish. We're not a part of this original covenant. In Jesus, we have one who invites us to participate in that covenant, to liberate us from idolatry, to unburden us, to forgive us. In Jesus, we have the light of the nations and we become the light of the nations that will bring that new thing to the ends of the earth. Could it be that this morning that servant wants to unburden you from something? Could it be that this morning that servant wants to take something off of the seat of ultimacy in your life and put it on the witness stand? Could it be 
that this morning, that servant wants to bring freedom in an area in your life that you have not experienced it. How are you going to respond to the call to serve the creator? How are you going to respond to the servant who's come to liberate you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I'm struck by how big your plan is uh, in Isaiah and how small I am, how small we are, and yet how tender how tenderly you care and love for us, that you care about us not being enslaved to idolatry, not because only of jealousy, but be, before, because you care about our good. You don't want us to be enslaved. You don't want us to be an abomination. We're thankful that we can sit on this side of the cross and to know that you have already brought that about, that the servant has already come to rescue us and to redeem us. I pray that if there are, are people here in this room that are feeling the weight of that burden, uh, that this would be the morning that they unburden themselves. Would you move by the power of your spirit to draw people uh, to the servant Christ this morning and help us to remember that your work is not done, but that you're still coming to make all things new, that you're gonna set every wrong right and that that final day of justice is gonna come for the whole creation. Let us participate in a little picture of that now, King Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.